Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about wonder, and specifically about a medieval Arabic text that taught its readers to look up from its pages and look out to the surrounding world and the surrounding cosmos with a disposition of wonderment. The book we'll be talking about is the Kitab Ajayb al-Makhluqat wa Haraib al-Mawjudat, the wonders of things that are created and the rarities of matters in existence. Its author, Zikriya al-Kazwini, lived in the 13th century, a period of the Mongol invasions, but nonetheless he managed to teach and study and write throughout a period of around 50 years in medieval Iraq. He drew into his book centuries, indeed more than a millennia of previous learning, drawing on the works of Aristotle and other Greek thinkers that had been translated in Arabic, as well as a series of Arabic geographers, philosophers, ethical writers, mystical writers, as well as astrologers and astronomers and chemists, and other natural philosophers. His book then was an account of the earth and the heavens, of the surrounding world and the world of the stars and the cosmos above. But it was crucially also a book that inculcated this philosophical disposition of how to look at the cosmos, how to relate to the cosmos, and how to learn from it. Joining us today in Akbar's chamber is Professor Travis Zadeh. He's an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Yale University and the author of Wonders and Rarities, the marvelous book that traveled the world and mapped the cosmos. Travis, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. It's great to be here. Thank you. So today we're going to be taking a journey to the medieval Middle East. And from there, we're going to be taking a journey across the whole world as seen from the medieval Middle East and indeed across the entire cosmos. And leading us on that journey, our medieval Muslim guide was a geographer and indeed cosmographer called Zikriya al-Khazvini. And he wrote one of the most important and influential works of Muslim geography and indeed cosmography, mapping out not just the world, but the cosmos and indeed how to understand, experience and look at it. So to start us off, can you introduce us to Kazvini and the society and education that shaped his ideas? Absolutely. Thank you, Niall. Yeah, uh, Kazvini is, is such a, a fascinating figure. Um, he, he was uh, 
born in northwestern Iran in, in, in the town of Kazvin, that's his namesake, uh, at, uh, in around uh, the year 12,000. Um, and he uh, grew up in a very uh, tumultuous time. And, and in certain ways, his background is uh, so interesting precisely because it, it marks a moment of inflection in world history. Uh, he had to flee his native town of Kazvin in uh, before the year 1220. We know that because uh, that was when the city was sacked by the Mongols, and he clearly was not one of the some 40,000 uh, inhabitants of the city who fell victim to the sacking of the of the um, of his town. And he left uh, on a on a journey. It, it appears we we know a lot about him through his own writings, through his geography uh, on. Uh, the Islamic lands, and uh, he gives references to these journeys, and, and we can glean a fair amount uh, from them. Uh, and he he makes his way clearly to Damascus. He he meets some very notable figures uh, during his journeys, including the likes of Ibn al-Arabi, the famed uh, mystic of from Murcia, originally from Murcia. Uh, but he ultimately settled, settled for a period in the town of, of Mosul, which is in, in Iraq, and, and there he, he met other luminaries and, and indeed uh, pursued a, a course of study of, of education. And this is a period of, of real effervescence in Islamic uh, philosophy and theology. And he uh, studied at the feet of some prominent uh, scholars, most notably Athiruddin Abhari, who wrote extensively on uh, on Ibn Sina and on uh, Fakhruddin al-Razi, these, these major intellectuals in Islamic thought that I'm sure we'll be getting into. Uh, and from there, he he uh, was ultimately uh, Kazvini himself was ultimately uh, not only trained in natural philosophy uh, and and the sciences, but uh, also uh, Islamic law, traditional Islam Islamic law, uh, and he was appointed as a judge first in Hilla uh, in in Iraq and then in in Wasit, which is on the Tigris uh, uh, on the Tigris River, um, and he also served as the chief uh, madrasa professor in the Islamic College of uh, of the city, uh, this uh, college referred to as the Shurabi College, um, and it was there that he lived uh, the rest of his life, and he died uh, in the year 1283. So it's a period of incredible um, upheaval because not only did uh, Kazvin fall in the first waves of the Mongol invasions, but so did Baghdad in 1258. And uh, and indeed, so did Wasit. His hometown was sacked uh, by the Mongols. And and yet he he survived all of these um, incidents. Um, he, he most likely, like the noble other notables of the city of Wasit, he would have fled before the the town was actually just kind of taken over by the, the Mongol in, invasion. Um, but he returned, uh, as many other uh, notables, uh, to find patronage in the new state, uh, the new Mongol state that that came uh, under Hulugu uh, in Iraq and Iran, which was the um, known today as the Ilkhanids. Um, and he found patronage there, and he was uh, put back clearly into his positions of uh, authority as both the, the chief judge of the city and um uh, the the head of this madrasa that he led until until his death and and then when he died he was um actually his body was brought to Baghdad where he was buried alongside other notable Shafi'i scholars so he's trained in this tradition of uh, Shafi'i law uh, a very classical uh, form of uh, canonical law in the in the Sunni um, uh, schools of Islamic law and also in Ashari uh, theology so that was um, these are just mainstream Sunni theological and juridical orientations 
Um, and in in Wasit, he clearly flourished and and was part of a network of of scholars and other luminaries that would have included people like Nasiruddin Tusi, the, the famed astronomer astrologer who uh, gained an incredible amount of uh, support under the the Mongols and was so influential in an observatory that he that Tusi established in Maraca. And so we know from uh, the literary record that survives that Kazvini uh, was in a, a network of, of scholars that included some of the most important thinkers of his day. And indeed, not only did he write this very interesting geographical compendium, a descriptive of geography on, um, of the Islamic lands, but he also most famously uh, composed this natural history or cosmology of, of the entire kind of universe, the whole cosmos. Um, and he dedicates it to... Uh, the 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 governor general of Iraq for the Ilkhanids, um, Atal Malik Jovani, uh, and, and and in this sense we can see how very much he kept in the good graces of the new rulers um, and part of a whole class of, of Muslim elites that were um, kind of found found a, a kind of accommodation with the the, the new state of the um, of the Ilkhanid. So uh, he, he lives a very tumultuous life uh, in, in many ways, but he also finds in, in some profound way. Uh, kind of stability through it all, uh, and and uh, and then in, in the course of his own intellectual pursuits, um, authors what would become one of the most influential, if just measured in the sheer number of manuscripts and, and copies that we have, natural histories in in Arabic and in Persian, um, because there's all by all measures um, he appears to have written the a, a Persian version of the natural history as well. We have a very early copy of it that. Um, goes back to his lifetime. So uh, the work circulated certainly in Persian and Arabic simultaneously from a, a very early period. Well, that's so so interesting to, to set up his life for us there, Travis, that we're seeing really that this Khazvin is a scholar. He's coming from his hometown of, of Khazvin and what's now northwestern Iran. And he he moves through a series of, of madrasas, colleges where he studies and then teaches and has some administrative or legal positions as well, but he's effectively a scholar, but he's caught up in the midst of, you know, this terrible catastrophe of, as you've described for us, the Mongol conquest. I, I, I'm trying to remember this, the, the famous line of another medieval Persian historian who described the coming of the Mongols, Armadandu, Kushtandu, Kuftandu, and they came and they killed and they looted yeah. and they burned and they left. Fortunately, by the time they got to Iraq, it wasn't quite as bad. But nonetheless, I mean, it was an immensely destructive period and putting to the end of the five centuries of the Abbasid Caliphate in 1258, by which time Kazavini would have been a man of 56, presumably, then so living through this really tumultuous period, but but as you mentioned too, it's a period in which the Mongols themselves adapt and learn not just to conquer and loot and leave, but to stay, remain, and 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 rule and administer through the likes of people like Kazvini then. And as you mentioned, he dedicates the book we're going to be talking about to these new Mongol rulers rather than raiders, the whom we call the Ilkhans. So that that yeah. 
That's absolutely right. That he's he's able to navigate these spaces uh, in in uh, a, like a whole array of other scholars of his generation, um, and and it's not to overstate um, the the just the profound um, destruction that that followed the, the the Mongols, but there's also clearly periods of uh, you could call it a kind of peace that then ensues, right? Uh, in, in a whole variety of, of ways um, and and forms of accommodation, and and indeed the flourishing of of a certain ideal of tolerance. Um, amongst all religions and, and different sects, too, that the Mongols uh, bring with them. Uh, it's something that Jawaini, his uh, patron, highlights in his own history about how how uh, uh, Genghis Khan uh, and, uh, himself was um, open to all, although an infidel was very much open to all different uh, sects and creeds and uh, ruled uh, in justice amongst them, them all. And it, indeed, Kazwini himself, you know, traveled not only in this, um, this landscape that was... Uh, very unsettled, but also had a, a real measures of stability. So you mentioned the Islamic colleges, and and clearly his his itinerary takes him, uh, his own um, maturation takes him through the madrasa system of colleges uh, and and a very established form of uh, of learning uh, through a set of of readings and with uh, teachers, uh, prominent teachers. And then he himself would go on to to lead a college, uh, and and have students uh, under him too that he would would teach. And and the the this is a period in terms of the intellectual history where natural um, philosophy is really integrated into uh, the curriculum of study. So uh, and that's really important to understand what a work like his um, Wonders and Rarities is doing is uh, it, when 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 he he writes it, it's 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 engaging with uh, uh, centuries of uh, natural philosophy that had become naturalized into Islamic thought. And uh, in many ways, he's a, a, not only um, a synthesizer, but also an inheritor of this tradition that goes back certainly to figures like Avicenna or Ibn Sina, um, and even even further um, afield into the earlier Abbasid translation movement, where we have the, the wide scale absorption of um, Greek learning uh, via largely Syriac intermediaries into Arabic. And so that makes available to figures like Ibn Sina and, and then those who inherit his legacy, a whole array of, the, of Aristotelian philosophy and um, natural thought uh, that then um, Muslim theologians will engage with and uh, and and really uh, think critically about the kind of contours in, of which uh, then shape the the course of Islamic philosophy and theology for centuries, notably with the figures like Ghazali, who Kazwini um, uh, cites on numerous occasions. And in his own um, kind of more proximate lifetime, uh, he he's of course. Um, uh, would have overlapped just very, very briefly with Fakhradin al-Razi, who's really the luminary of the age, uh, a, a major uh, Ashari theologian, but also a philosopher and someone who engaged critically and substantially with uh, Avicenna and Avicenna metaphysics. And, and indeed, the, the whole architecture of Avicenna thought can be found throughout um, Kazwini's uh, work on uh, natural history. It opens up a picture of the world uh, that's that's fundamentally um, knowable in, in one sense that can be described uh, and can be rationalized uh, and uh, and can be accounted for. Um, but also uh, what's so exciting in, in so many ways about Avicenna for the figures like uh, Kazwini and others and his teachers like Abhari is that 
uh, Avicenna will give a language to magic and miracle that is fully rationalized. Uh, and thus, in, in a sense, you could say it helps to wed together uh, religion and science as not two dichotomous kind of um, entities, but as profoundly interconnected, because it is through both religion and science that we can account for the miraculous, the marvelous, and the strange, and indeed, that's very much at the heart of Kazuini's project of, um, of, of as a natural philosopher, as someone engaging with uh, the, the physical world, of how to account for the the, the marvels of creation in in scientific terms. Um, so that's a little bit about the milieu in which he's 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 working uh, in, in in his own lifetime and 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 the background of the the scholars. Of course, an, another thing that's so uh, important for Kazvini and the period in, in in which he's writing is he intersects with you know these major figures. Uh, I mentioned Ibn al-Arabi, and there's several others who are um, what we would call mystics as well. And and indeed, there's um, references that he'll make to to Sohravardi, another very important mystic uh, uh, philosopher. Uh, uh, who is follows in, in, in profound ways uh, the mantle of Avicenna um, too. And, and you can see uh, in, in so many concrete ways how the, the legacy of, of mysticism, of natural philosophy, of theology, of even law, you know, all of these currents come together in a figure like Kazvini, uh, and he's just able to kind of harness them and put them together in a very attractive package, as it were, because uh, the book itself is um, is just a, a marvel to behold. It is truly a, a, a beautiful work of of art in in its own right, and so it's it's very much part of a, of a world of beauty and a world of um, of reflection on on the the nature of of existence. That that's really helpful, Travis. Because I, I'd started up by framing or, or or describing Casvini as a geographer and cosmographer, but he's much more than that, isn't he? I mean, as you said, in many if we're going to label him as a the, a natural philosopher, philosopher of the natural world, or the, the kind of term that later became replaced by scientist, but he's also drawing drawing on mysticism, on ideas of law of of all of the sciences chemistry, alchemy, both chemistry and what we now call alchemy. So in a sense, he's a sort of a synthesizer, as have you said, of all these centuries of, of the development of Arabic learning, the inheritance of, of Greek and indeed of Sanskritic learning that comes through Baghdad translations into Arabic. And he produces this, this extraordinary book. And I think what's, what's striking too is that he's writing about the entire cosmos and indeed the order of the things on, on Earth. And yet he's not a great traveler. I mean, as you described, he lives out his life from his hometown and then moving down the Tigris and Euphrates to the towns there in, in Iraq. And he's a sort of an older contemporary of, of Ibn Battuta, the famous with the Muslim Marco Polo, who, you know, kind of travels for decades. But but because uh, really doesn't do that. He's a scholar, not a traveler. And he's learning about the world through through reading. Reading, looking at the world, I think, and and reflection on that, I suppose, books and uh, and indeed his experiences of the world. But the reason we're talking about him, of course, is because of his famous book, Ajayb al-Makhluqat wa Harayb al-Mawjudat, the the wonder of things created and the rarities of matters existent. So, with this rather grand title, what's his book about, and what made it so influential? Yeah. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it, it, uh, it. The the book is is uh got got a big kind of uh, purview, a very ambitious purview, mm-hmm. and, and it's really summed up in the the that uh, beautiful rhyming title, the Ajabul Makhlukat, right? The wonders of creation and the Kharabul Mojud, that the kind of rarities of things kind of exist in, and and it it, it it and it brings in um the entirety of of the cosmos, and we call it a a kind of cosmology, a whole way of mapping the the universe, and and it um and it starts from the heavens and it makes its way all the way down into the minutia of, of minerals. And, um, and, and along the way we we're going to encounter the planets and the, the whole realm of angels, uh, uh, the sublunar realm of everything under the, the moon. Um, he'll, he'll move in, in many ways into something that we would think of as earth science uh, today of, of um, atmospheric conditions and uh, the, the development of um, rivers and mountains and continents even, and, uh, the the the, the uh, all the contents that would that very much unfold on the earth itself uh and and with it the full spectrum of human diversity and and then into a, an accounting of uh plants minerals animals there's a whole botany that that unfolds zoology um uh that that we are encountering and then uh he concludes kind of wraps it all up in a bow with uh, accounts of uh, strange creatures and that that um are uh that we might think of as as monsters but that you know the word itself is um maybe predisposes a certain kind of reading of what these creatures are for Kazwini and, and the, his interlocutors and his contemporaries. So it is a um, a big book. It really does try to capture in every sense of the word, the world within the word, right? Uh, and, it, and it plays with it. And indeed, it's just as you said, he opens up the book, you know, saying that the best companion of all is 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 having a good book next to you, right? Um, so this play with bookish culture is something that that flows throughout the work. And he, it's true, he he doesn't, you know, unlike someone like Ibn Battuta or all the many, like Ibn Jubair, all these many other very famous travelers, and indeed there were so many during his lo- lifetime uh, that that um, traveled the whole world. He was not by any measure a globetrotter and his, his journeys were quite modest, taking him like a kind of class of people of his time of of elites that had the means to travel and the the pursuit of knowledge um he may have performed the pilgrimage but we don't know uh he actually writes although you get glimpses in his geography the companion geography of his own experience he he really prefers to rely on on the authority of books um, more than anything uh, which is part of uh, a long tradition that that he's inheriting and so it's not that he's um uncritical and indeed he does very interesting things in the way he synthesizes other people's writings and other people's observations and and in many forms he is a, a compiler but a, a deeply sensitive uh person to the world around him and uh and brings in an eye of humor of delectation of pleasure um as well as a, a critical sensibility of how to appreciate the complexity of the world around him and indeed one of the most important things to understand about this book we talk about it as a natural history we think of it as a, a work of of uh, profound contemplation about nature but for Kazwini, the category of nature is doing something quite different i mean for him the operative category that we would you know today think of as as the natural world is actually creation right uh, and and in that is an argument a very simple argument that with creation there is a creator and so in his pursuit of putting together the entire universe, the entire cosmos in a book is also a profound argument about order, about um, design and, and about justice even uh, in, in the world, the kind of equilibrium in the world that has in it uh, the signs of God's 
um, intention and wisdom. Hikmah is the word that's used over and over again. And it's an important word, hikmah, here, because it's also the word uh, at this period for philosophy writ large. Uh, and so his um, uh, uh, Ustad, his teacher, Abhari, would write a very important work on hikmah, uh, on philosophy that uh, would uh, go through several commentaries. It would uh, enjoyed many, a long reception. It would be copied widely in madrasas uh, for generations and, and uh, the students that followed after Abhari. And indeed, this is something that we can trace back to Ibn Sina as well. This, this notion of hikmah um, as uh, just like in, in, in Greek, where we have love of philosophy, like love of wisdom uh, in the word philosophy. Well, hikmah has the sense of wisdom, you know, baked right into it. And it also is an argument about divine wisdom at, at its core, that the natural world is structured through uh, divine design and it has within it the intention of a creator behind it. So it's not to say that because doesn't have a notion of nature, which he does, but it's much more the Aristotelian notion of nature, which is wrapped up in ideas of forces, tabia, right? That you have, um, you know, the, the very famous work of Aristotle that would have been very well known to Kazwini, certainly uh, Ibn Sina would comment on it, the metaphysics. Well, of course, in Arabic, you know, it's battle tabia, what comes after the meta, the physics is the metaphysics. Uh, uh, is just the the what the Greek is means when we say metaphysics. Of course, today we think of metaphysics in a much more kind of synthesized form as a totality. Um, but it was in the original Greek, it was just a kind of curricular kind of marker of what you'd study after you've studied the physics. And in this sense, tabia is, is for Kazmini, which is a category he will use extensively is actually um, the word for kind of dispositions or physical forces in, in creation or in what we would call nature that uh, govern the world. And notably, he will draw it so in so many ways, often very, very subtly on Ibn Sina's arguments around um, the wisdom of nature. And at the end of, uh, of the wonders and rarities, he, he turns uh, and he just quotes the, the great Hakim. He just refers to Ibn Sina as the Hakim. And he says, as the Hakim has says, as the great philosopher has said, um, ajaib, you know, in nature or in creation are wonders. And, and it's an argument that Ibn Sina is going to make over and over again. Uh, and and it's, it's part of a very profound kind of set of interventions that make Ibn Sina so influential precisely as he's able to uh, look at the strange and the rare, the odd, and put it into a language of science and into reason and to rationalize, as I've, I mentioned earlier, uh, both magic and miracle into the fabric of um, philosophy and science. And it's and it's these points precisely that um, Kazuini will draw on again and again when he'll turn to the strange uh, and the the marvelous, uh, the, the extraordinary as um, points of interest and points of um, delectation and, and reflection. That's, that's again, re really helpful, Travis, because as you pointed out, what we're dealing with here is, we, we've called it natural philosophy, but it's not a natural world in, let's say, uh, well, a more modern or, let's say, atheistic or, or, or sense. I mean, the, the key word there, as you pointed out, in the title of the text, the Ajayb al-Mahluqat, the, the wonders of, of, of creation, linked, of course, to the Arabic word, Khalik, creator, and al-Khalik is one of the, the Quranic names of God. God is the creator. And indeed, as you said, the whether with Ibn Sina, the philosopher, natural scientist, Durandi Khazvini, and many others, 
they're looking and are trying to understand through observation and and so on the natural world as natural philosophers trying to understand the natural world but not as divorced from god because again that key axiom just as there's a, a creator there's also that axiom derived from the quran that the world the creation is full of signs ayat isn't it that word that i think you may have mentioned full of signs that will help people understand not only the world, not only themselves, but the intentions of God in making this creation. So philosophy here is, as you've mentioned, natural philosophy, observation of the natural world is linked with, with theology in a sense as well, or philosophy and the physics linked then with the metaphysics. These aren't separate, still less competing forms of knowledge. These are integrated together. So what... Casvini's book then isn't only descriptive then, it's not only describing the natural natural world as seen, it, it also instills then a, in readers a particular attitude or we might say disposition to the surrounding world, which as we've said then is, is the surrounding world, which is al-mahluqat, God's creation. And this attitude or disposition that in, as in your own book you, you've argued that the Kazvini is, is trying to inculcate in his own readers was an attitude of, of wonderment, again, summed up in the title of his book. So can you explain for us why such wonderment and such marvelling there, not just marvellous in a, in a trivial sense, but marvellous as in these are marvels that instill a disposition of wonder. Can, can you explain to us then why, why such wonderment was important and not only to Kazvini, but to so many other pre-modern Muslims as well. Absolutely. The, I mean, wonder here is doing such uh, significant work for, for Kazwini. And indeed, he ha- offers us one of the most significant discussions of wonder that we have in Islamic history. Uh, it, it, the book it not only uh, gives us this whole accounting of the cosmos, but it, it starts off with a definition of key terms in a real tr- scholastic form. Um, and and he's, he not only... Uh, writes in in a way that's very clear and and demarcated uh, and well structured with clear signposting to guide the reader along the way. But he also uh, weaves into his writing, uh, as I've been hinting at, um, all forms of pleasure and delectation. So he's really um, somebody who not only reflects on this problem of wonderment, but also brings to his pen and to the paper um, a, a, a sensibility that tries to instill wonder as well. So there's real fun play between form and content throughout uh, the work. And indeed, th- this uh, issue known in, in Arabic as lafs is the form and ma'ana, the, the content is something that occupied philosophers and poets and um, and uh, uh, literatures for, for centuries well before Kazini. But um, so he's, he brings into this opening conversation around the key terms, uh, a sensibility of play and of entertainment, but also something that's very serious too. And and I think that there's a kind of um, intention here of, of making it accessible and pleasurable, um, certainly entertaining, but also uh, to in the course of doing so develop being uh, really hard-hitting philosophical arguments and ethical sensibilities. And wonder uh, certainly is is at the heart of this for Kazvini in in so many ways. Um, Rarity too, and I I think we will get to that, but wonder uh, is right in that opening, right? Like you said, the ajayab al-mahlukat, the wonders of creation, and this this word ta'ajab of of feeling amazement or or wonderment. And, um, And by the time that Kazvini has 
kind of pick this topic up, Muslims had been giving quite a bit of thought to it. Of course, it has a really ancient pedigree, right? If we can go back to Plato, uh, certainly Aristotle, I mentioned the metaphysics, uh, where Aristotle will open up the metaphysics with the argument that philosophy begins in wonder. Uh, and it begins in uh, humankind kind of contemplating the causes of things and being bewildered by things that are remote or, or un not understood. So you look up at the heavens and and how on earth and does this does this amazing you know structure of the cosmos work? And indeed, the word for cosmos uh, and for kind of cosmology is like ilm al-haya in Arabic, or uh, the the knowledge of the science of. The, the structure or the disposition, the form, um, and with it a sense of a kind of intentionality into the whole way in which the orbs can work uh, in perfect harmony as it's understood through a Ptolemaic system of uh, of um, planetary movement, right? Um, that would have been uh, very well known to Kazwini, indeed Kazwini will draw upon it over and over again in the opening discussion of the planets. But uh, he'll turn to these, these kind of... Um, uh, these signs, uh, like you said, the ayat uh, of creation, of nature, uh, as an argument of, of coming to know God and, and coming to know God in, in, in an inf inferential way and also through processes of reason. And precisely, as you said, this word of nazar, of to, to look and to behold, is also the Arabic translation for the word theoria, right, of, of how we might uh, kind of contemplate and theorize um, and come to uh, attain certain forms of knowledge. This this is a, a central word for him, and as and as uh, um, uh, you know, Persis Burlakamp, who's done a wonderful work on the art history element of uh, the illuminations of this work, which is something we we can talk about as well, um, highlights is that Kazvini uh, is is constantly playing with the ocular. Not only is the book illuminated with beautiful images, but he's always appealing to our sense of of sight as a form of of knowledge. Of course, it's a very old idea uh, that we come to knowledge through our senses and primarily and and so. In, in the history of kind of Western metaphysics, certainly through eyesight, and that's something enjoyed uh, and celebrated too by Muslim intellectuals. And Kazwini will engage with um, the ocular in, in so many ways. And what he will argue is that by contemplating um, existence and by looking at the complexities, we not only come to understand um, the, the world with greater um, awe, but that it leads to further levels of astonishment and further levels of um, wonder and perplexity. And indeed, he makes this really, you know, telling move because, in in one sense, you have with um, Aristotle the notion that 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 knowledge is the end of wonder, right? That if wonder is kind of contemplating things that you don't know the causes of, well, then philosophy would be the end of that wonderment in some sense. And Kazwini, this is an argument that's actually picked up in, in a variety of, of places um, and turned around. And Kazwini will take this argument and kind of flip it on its head and, and say that actually, if we cease to wonder, that's itself a form of ignorance. Uh, and that we as adults have become estranged to the feeling of children who will contemplate, you know, the beehive, the, perf the perfection of the hexagons that are in the beehive. Who could do this if not, as Kazuini will argue, by some kind of design uh, and, and intentionality in it. And if we just kind of look at the world with a kind of habituation and become accustomed to it without that sense of awe or perplexity, it's because we've kind of grown familiar but that not only are the wonders of the world remote for Kazwini, but they're right there proximate to us all around. Uh, and indeed his reflections on wonderment 
are also reflections on this larger kind of uh, discipline of the self. He uses this word tahdib al-akhlaq, the, the disciplining of the, the ethics and the tahdib al-nafs, the disciplining of the soul or the psyche, um, as a spiritual pursuit of cultivating higher senses of awareness and greater forms of appreciation. And in it, a kind of humbling of the self with respect to to this divine order. And, and of course, that was found, that kind of argument is found in Ghazali. You see it in Razi, as I mentioned, and, and Kazwini's kind of making really interesting, playful allusions to both. Uh, Ghazali and his reviv revivification of the religious sciences, the famed Ehiya al-Lum al-Din, will make the argument that, that, that the natural world, that creation, that nature is like the suhuf of God, the scrolls of God. And it's, of course, a very old metaphor, the, the, the natural world that's the book of God. Um, but Kazwini is going to turn to that argument um, and, and really play on that, that notion of that the best companion that we have is a book. Uh, when that book is, in many ways, not only what we're holding before us in his wonders of creation, but also the book of nature uh, that will give us all these kind of moral uh, lessons to, to entertain. So wonderment is this core category, um, but also rarity. And, and rarity is doing all this very interesting work in, uh, in, in not only kind of in, in Arabic and Persian today, when we say ajayab wa kharaib, ajayab kharaib, you know, these words almost sound like they're all of, of one sort. They just kind of ally together as a, a single thing. But what Kuswini teaches is actually to really understand wonder, we need to think about rarity in, in distinct terms. And so although it is almost um, kind of so common that it allies together wonders and rarities in Persian, Urdu, Arabic, you know, Turkish, um, uh, there are, because when he does this really interesting move where he'll give a whole chapter on rarity and define it as a separate thing. And it's actually doing something quite distinct. Uh, uh, it's, it's not only kind of an this sense of wonderment that we'll feel, right, in that emotive or effective uh, way in which to wonder or to be amazed might kind of give us a certain kind of disposition in the world and to, to creation and what have you. But rarity is also part of this language of miracle and magic that I've been highlighting. Um, and it, it's another way to translate gharib is, of course, the strange and the paranormal and the those the weird, right? Um, and it, indeed, this this language of the strange and the rare and the paranormal is also at the heart of his discussion of what we would call monsters. Uh, and it's very interesting that Arabic doesn't have the same kind. I mean, Arabic, Persian, you know, Urdu, Turkish. We can think of words for mo monsters, certainly like janvar, um, uh, 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 washi, right? Uh, uh, you know, but but they're not they're not exactly equivalent to 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 the Latinate word monster in what it comes to signify. I mean, you get like wild or animal-like, brutish, um, beast, right? I mean, these are words that we can pull on in um, in an emic sense in Arabic, Persian, or Turkish, what have you. Um, but monster has the kind of evil ontology baked into it, right? Something evil <laughs> at the heart of it. Um, that uh, certainly as it progresses over time, it has many meanings. I don't want to flatten it out in any measure, but monstrosity, um, something that goes against nature, perhaps. Uh, you know, for Kazvini, these are gharaib. Uh, these are rarities or oddities. Um, but gharaib can also be miracles and um, shooting stars or, you know, rare events that are miraculous and, and um, spectacular and, and beautiful. So there's this constant play between the horrific and the sublime. And if anything, there's a kind of argument that leads right through it. And I feel like it's part of this period of profound, uh, you know, tumult that he's living in that 
there is no evil in the world apart that could in any way stand to confront God. And it's part of a long tradition of Islamic theodicy that wrestles with the problem of evil in the world. Um, and in standard theological you know, teachings that he would have been very familiar with of, by Ashari and certainly Avicenna, you know, there, there there's a, a profound kind of reordering of the whole nature of evil uh, itself. And Kazwini is, uh, kind of speaks right to this uh, at the opening and throughout the work. Um, and I, I, where that, that there's there's just no possibility in the cosmos for there to be an independent force apart from God. And so everything originates in God. Um, and, and, and in a sense, um, you, know, you, you think of evil as the privation of good, you know, in an Avicenna sense, or evil as kind of perspectival, right? Um, or, or something that we can't possibly comprehend. Because we need, you know, turns to the famous story of Khidr in the Quran to give uh, an explanation of all these events that, uh, that that unfold in the Quranic story of Moses and his, and his companion, um, of, of events that the companion, you know, keeps doing and, and Moses doesn't understand why. Why? Uh, and they seem like they're evil things that his companion, you know, does. And it, this is when the classic text for um, ex ex thinking about evil in the world, because the, the companion will turn to Moses after, um, you know, even murdering somebody, you know, and and um, and and he's told Moses, don't ask me any questions. And Moses keeps asking. He's like, all right, I'll give you an answer. And it all folds out as part of a divine plan that Moses was the agent of God. So what appears to be evil from one perspective is actually, you know, part of a larger orchestration of of divine you know, um, kind of order and justice. Um, and so this appeal to the natural world as perfectly ordered, um, you know, you, you hear it in the expression of Ghazali in this kind of uh, articulation of um, a, a pure optimism, there's nothing more um, amazing in all kind of possibility than what is. Uh, you, you hear that kind of sensibility throughout Kazini. And so uh, although we are going to encounter all forms of what we would call monstrosities throughout the work uh, as we as it moves along, there's also a sense that this is um, part of a beautiful order of, of the world as well. So this is surprising in... All manner of ways, really, Travis, because having set out, as, as I did by describing this as a, a geographical book, as a as a as a cosmographical work, a book, a book about the cosmos, you've explained that it has so many of these other dimensions and intentions of the author Casvini, not least to make us a better person, to make the reader a better person. Now, that's really kind of counterintuitive uh, thing now, intention for a book about geography, about the natural world and about the stars and the planets. I mean, no one would nowadays go to a work about astronomy, about the stars and the planets, or indeed a book about animals and plants to make them a better person. <laughs> and yet there's this, this ethical dimension in, in the text. So can you explain then how this, this attitude or this disposition of wonder that Hasvin is trying to inculcate in his readers relates to wider ethical as well as perhaps philosophical and mystical dimensions of Islamic thought. Absolutely. that I, I think he, he flags it right in the opening, and I think it's so important to note how this is not only 
an activity of pleasure, which I think it is. I, I think in every form of, of, of it, this is a pleasurable book. It's something, it's, it's a, a wonder to behold, right? It, it's filled with beauty. It, it invites us to uh, contemplate existence in, in forms that are um, pleasurable and strange and curious. Uh, it excites the passions. Uh, I think there's a whole erotic element to the way the text is received that's interesting, uh, certainly. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I don't think we should dismiss the profound ethical sensibility that he brings to it. And I don't think it is in any way um, uh, just done in tongue and cheek. Uh, and indeed, I think the the long reception history of the work is testament to how it became um, not only a part of the Islamic canon, but but also stood for a whole metonym, a whole kind of uh, kind of metaphor, as it were, for uh, how to be in the world and, and how to refine the self. And it's precisely this language of tahdib al-akhlaq, or uh, the discipline of ethics, or the discipline of the self that um, he, he gets right into uh, and thinking about uh, contemplation and reflection as an ethical pursuit. Uh, and, in, and and certainly it, it forms part of a larger argument about uh, hierarchy. And, 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 in, and in, in many ways, um, it, it, so, what's so exciting about this work is that it, it opens up a universe uh, of thought and, and belief and ways of being that are, are in so many ways radically distinct from the modern world, although there's so, uh, so many other echoes that make it so intelligible uh, to us. But one of these ways is the hierarchical dimension, that, that idea of stratification, the scala natura in, of Latin scholasticism. That's, you know, comes out of Aristotle, out of Plato. Uh, certainly it's part of um, Ibn Sina. Uh, and indeed, Kazwini is going to draw on it uh, time and again. Uh, and it's, part, it's certainly uh, a, a core notion of the ethical comportment of the self. Um, that there's not only dispositions that we may inherit, right? And this word is actually very interesting. It's, and of course, hexus uh, in Greek or habitus in Latin, the, the Arabic is hea. That same word I used for the cosmos is also the word for disposition, right? That the disposition or the form or the structure of us as individuals in some measure is predetermined. And that's that has a, a long history in uh, climactic theories of how our dispositions may be formed through our very constitution in the world, in the cosmos, of where we're born, of how we're located. Um, and, and it goes into that, you know, kind of story debate of nature and nurture. And indeed, on the nurture side, uh, if we're going to move away from nature into the nurture side, is all of these forms of contemplation, reflection, of discipline, of refinement that are meant to tame and in some fashion kind of harness the self and harness the dispositions that we may have as individuals and um, improve them. And so there's not only a, a discourse of hierarchy uh, that's widespread and, and quite um, very much part of the fabric of of natural history at this period and of philosophy, um, and indeed Kazwini as part of this kind of elite society of the literate in a pre-industrial kind of world, um, certainly reflects a, 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 in, in some measure um, a, the, the learned kind of scholars of the day and uh, and and uh, in part of a, a hierarchy of, of existence. Um, and this book celebrates that hierarchy, but also thinks about how we as individuals can navigate it and also understand our place within it. Um, and in, in that sense, it's very different than kind of modern, certain modern sensibilities that would um, look askance at, uh, at justifications of hierarchy through nature, for, for, for want of a better word. Uh, so in that, that regard, the philosophical argument of ethical comportment um, is also an, an argument about the soul. 
And the soul is something he has a whole chapter on uh, in his discussion of uh, human anatomy. Of course, uh, you know, Aristotle, uh, uh, Farabi, you know, you have uh, Avicenna, I've said many times, Ghazali, Razi, you know, these are the topic of the soul, the psyche, the nafs is um, uh, something that's occupied uh, philosophers and theologians for centuries. And Kazwini, again, is uh, is really a, a compiler and a reformulator in drawing upon it, um, these uh, these ideas of ethical comportment, of uh, improving the self. And the self is ultimately the source of the, the soul, the, the nafs is the source of cognition, and with it, the ability to produce um, not only knowledge, but also miracles uh, as well, and with it, higher states of gnosis, right? And so when he appeals in his geography to Sufravardi or um, to to the, the the Sufis that he's enc encountered and indeed is in the circles of, we know he, he traveled in the circles of Sufis. I mentioned Ibn al-Arabi, he had his own um, silsila that that he could draw upon of, of sheikhs that he studied with, and, and we get a sense of that in the later biographies that follow after him. He encountered a world of miracle workers, of people who could produce karamat, you know, these uh, the, the the miracles of saints, right? The the kind of um, wonders that that uh, that the Gnostics or the the, the knowers would would be able to kind of attain. And it's uh, and it's in this rationalization of the natural world that he's going to offer explanations for how prophecy unfolds, how clairvoyancy uh, can develop, um, how talismans work, how uh, forms of well, what we will call magic, uh, for want of a better word, um, uh, unfold, like in the evil eye, uh, in this unique properties locked in, uh, in uh, the substances spread throughout creation. And so not only do we have a, a hierarchy that is uh, perfectly ordered and balanced, uh, at least in an ideal sense, we also have a world that's filled with kind of possibilities that can be harnessed. And I think one of the reasons this book is so uh, wide, kind of widely copied and had been uh, it's been so celebrated over time is that uh, the bulk of it really is on on uh, uh, minerals, plants, and animals, right? It's really a, a zoology, a mineralogy, a botany. And what is he going to do in these sections? Not only are they illuminated with beautiful paintings that will give us in in, in real detail a naturalistic kind of accounting of the world um, as painters in the day um, would, would do, and it would evolve in different times and in different idioms and styles of painting. But he also will index for us all the various uses of these um these these materials in the world that we can harness for um, a variety of ends. Back to that nature and nurture component, right? Of the the habitus that we have as individuals, the disposition, but also the capacity. As you said, he had an awareness of alchemy very very much. So he clearly knew a, a, quite a bit about astronomy and astrology. Um, so how to harness the world, uh, to unlock the secrets of creation, uh, and and deploy them for all forms of um, ends. And in this way, uh, there's so many analogs in the Latin West, actually. It's very interesting at the same period. You know, these books on the secrets of nature in Latin, you know, circulated widely and they have uh, kind of overlaps, profound overlaps with the Arabic material and, and, and indeed the kind of interconnections um, with Aristotle and with uh, uh, the kind of alchemy and astronomy and astrology, you know, show uh, that when we're looking at this Eurasian context, that there's these profound synergies uh, and parallels that um, that you know can, can you could take from a work like Kazvini and see not, um, kind of uh, all these kind of examples of of similarities in in the Latin West, right? Of books on um, on, on strange creatures, on animals, on plants, uh, and indeed it's part of this larger scholastic 
basic, almost universal uh, science that uh, that uh, brings the East and West together in, in a variety of, of interesting ways. And this interest in unlocking the secrets of nature, I think, is certainly um, part of it. Um, there's also, of course, uh, no doubt, a philosophical question of how to engage with the diversity of existence, right? Um, that that's there, and how to do that in an ethical in an ethical way. And so, in in that re regard. Because Winnie's book is a kind of um, emblem of a whole set of dispositions, of feelings, of um, ways of thinking about the world that was entirely legible for a long period of time over a vast kind of, uh, re set of regions and um, and in a, a whole variety of languages as well. Yeah, I mean, as you've noted, it was much copied, beautifully illuminated, and, and listeners might want to put into a search engine Kazvini's name and see so many of those beautiful illuminations come up. I mean, there's so many beautiful paintings painted in uh, over the centuries that, uh, that illustrated the book, translated into different languages. And indeed, as, you, as you've said several times, it, it draws on Aristotelian tradition and, it, and, it's, and it's a worldview or a view of the cosmos that isn't necessarily distinctly Muslim. I mean, I was thinking of the famous argument for design, which is a key part of Catholic theology. And in the early 19th century, the beginnings of the, I guess, the industrial and midway through what historians have called the scientific revolution, there's the, the British Anglican theologian, William Paley, often known as Clockmaker Paley, for his sort of more sort of scientific era account of the argument of for the existence of God via design by, by saying famously, if someone, imagine someone goes into a desert and finds a a pocket watch. They must infer through its wonderful logic of its movement and, and its design that there must also be a designer. There must be a clockmaker. When we look at the cosmos and its wonderful design, there must be a grand designer. And, and interestingly, too, when you were talking about the those links between East and West, and in your own book, you explore the, the discovery, the translation and the transmission of Kazvini's book to, to European and, and later sort of American libraries as well. That it made me think of actually the a book I wrote myself a few years ago about the first Muslim students that came to Europe in the early 19th century. And one of the books that they read, studying the sciences, European sciences as they were, one of the books they read and were most impressed by, according to their own testament, was William Paley's uh, famous work then about the argument for existence through of the gods' existence through design, because clearly it was something that fitted their own sort of Muslim worldview as well, that was compatible between. Muslims, Christians, and indeed students of science, you know, kind of in the eight, 1800s. So after several centuries then of scientific discoveries then in these sort of intervening centuries then, the scientific discoveries have changed the way both Muslims and non-Muslims view the cosmos. So that being the case, how and why is Kazvini's cosmography still important to us today? No, it's a it's a great question, uh, and in, and indeed it's 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 part of the the very kind of problem at the heart of of this book that I, that I uh, that I just finished on Kazvini is how to account for 
the long endurance of this work and its um, continued relevance and, and popularity over such a, so as you mentioned, so many languages, uh, Turkish, Urdu, uh, you know, there's Persian translations uh, and Arabic, you, you can find it in, you know, almost every library copied all the way into the, the you know, the 20th century, you get uh, 19th century lithographs, so it makes its way right into print um, throughout the, uh, in India and uh Qajar Iran, uh, you get these printed books of Kazvini. Uh, so why the the um, enduring legacy of this work? You know, when so much of the world changes, and so in and so in another sense, what I've been trying to do in this book is answer this question of what did it mean for the world to go from fundamentally, in some sense unknowable and its limits right and i and i could talk about that a bit to knowable right and that move from uh that we mark as like the pre-modern into the modern um and and how did muslims kind of account for it in in, in different ways and because and we need a, just not only the circulation of the work but it's its contents is such an interesting index for these these problems because yes the work did circulate but it has no knowledge of the western hemisphere uh and it has a, a doggedly you know insistence on uh geocentrism right that the world is at the the heart of the universe of course these two uh, profound cosmological reorientations are what mark us as moderns right the kind of just basic understanding of the world as um having two hemispheres they they knew of course muslims knew the world was a sphere as did the greeks um and they knew there there was uh, that they were in a hemisphere and that there were two spheres but they had no knowledge of what lay uh, beyond um the the strait of gibraltar past the the canary islands the the so-called eternal islands as as they were known in, in Greek and Arabic. And so, um, uh, yes, the work continued to, to circulate. Uh, it also, though, interestingly, as with, with other uh, kind of classics, um, would become a, a place for um, uh, kind of reformulation. And and uh, and there's fascinating stories of this of of reimagining. And so we get in uh, Mamluk Cairo, uh, um, you know, a copy of Kazvini, where we have a map of the world that has now in the 1500s the Americas peek out on the side, right? So Kazvini's um, still very important, and yet he's also um, you know a place that can be returned to over and over again in, in all these ways, and also reimagined. And and so while we have a kind of a fixed set of texts, certainly it by no measure was it static or um, just kind of closed off. So not only do we have these interesting kind of hints at at new knowledge getting incorporated into the work, we also have in the Indian context where the book was truly a bestseller. Um, and I mentioned that there's in the 19th century we have Urdu translations, um, but we have countless copies in Persian and indeed um, in the Deccan uh, under the Adil Shahs, we get in the in the late uh, 1500s a new Persian translation. Uh, there have been several already, but the uh, um, you know the Adil Shah, uh, the kind of ruler in 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 the Deccan, you know at the time uh, in the 1500 late 1500s, he commissioned a new translation of it into Persian, uh, in a kind of very florid Persian of the day. Uh, and that copy, interestingly enough, and this is just to the question of kind of its relevance and the continuity and the local adaptations uh, and what have you. Not only was this copy illuminated, but it also became the home of an extended commentary tradition, or I should say, um, margin 
marginalia, a set of marginalia that would be included along the edges of the manuscript. So, of course, our manuscripts, uh, uh, you know, in many ways, this is my book is a book about books and about book culture and, and the lives of books. And manuscripts often uh, would have commentaries written around the sides or of the margins of the book. And there would be lavish, you know, um, paintings, but also lots of uh, space given to fill in the margins. Um, and these, uh, the, this one uh, set of manuscripts that all descend from the same source, it appears, uh, include a, a whole array of, of commentaries uh, and, and treaties uh, that are added to it. Poetry, um, uh, there's elements drawn from Darshuku, the famed mystic of, of India, uh, that, that uh, the, the son of, of, um, of Shah Jahan that, that uh, of course, uh, is very well known to Mughal historians, would, would write on, um, you know, the the, the the Sanskrit uh, cosmos and, um, and and look at the Upanishads as the way of interpreting the Quran very famously in his uh, Majmul Bahrain, the confluence of two oceans that um, Supriya Gandhi has written very eloquently about. And, you know, in this work, uh, you know, you have a, a prince who engages with the cosmos through the Ved, through uh, the, the Sanskrit Upanishads, and he uses these Upanishads to interpret the Quran. And of course, we'll have a, some, a scribe think it's entirely appropriate to put this into Kazwini, right? <laughs> and we put it right on the margins of Kazwini's text. Um, and, and it's updating it, as it were, and, and giving it a whole new veneer and a whole new sensibility. Um, and in that sense, it, you can see all these kind of afterlives of the work um, that, that continue to give it relevance and importance for generations. Well, I hope you've inspired many listeners to read your own book, certainly, but then also to go on and read Kazvini himself, whether in translation into English, perhaps Persian or Arabic, or any of the other languages in which it was transmitted. Professor Travisade, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. Da 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 da